Lord Jesus Christ, we've heard your word, both from the gospel and from the Old Testament, the Psalm, the letter of James. Speak to us through your word this morning. Help our hearts to hear well and help me to speak what you would have me say this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're starting today a series on the book of James. It's a lovely little book. I recommend that you read it. I wonder if you remember these two quotes. There will be no wrecking, no undermining, and no sniping. <laughs> I take it that you do. Or this one. I accept fully the verdict of the caucus, and I dedicate myself to working fully for Julia Gillard's re-election as the Prime Minister of Australia. The thing is that words are only as powerful as one's commitment to them, which is why actions speak louder than words. And now we've read the book of James. Because in this little book, James is speaking to us about listening to the words of God and being obedient to them. Some of you will know that I'm a, a lover of words. Our English word obedience comes from the Latin verb ordir, meaning to hear. So when we listen and hear, we obey. And the Hebrew word for obey is also, as it happens, a derivative of the verb to hear. In fact, it's the very first word in the prayer that every observant Jew, presumably including Jesus, prayed, has prayed every morning and every evening for the last 3,000 years or so. Shema means hear. And every Jewish person prays this. Alan read it to us beautifully this morning at the start of his readings. He didn't say Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohainu Adonai Echad, but he did say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Millions of Jews recited this as they were led naked into the gas showers in Auschwitz and other places. Hear, listen, obey. And Shema means both to hear and to obey. There's no separation. If you hear, you obey. It's as simple as that for the Jew. Look at this passage. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Shema. Now note carefully the sequence. It's interesting. We will do and then we will be obedient. You might have thought that it would have been the other way around. Yes, Lord, we will obey you. We will do what you say. <clears throat> but the writer chose to write it this way. We will do, and we will hear or obey. Doing seems to have been a prerequisite to a general obedience. Doing matters. 
Now, this book of James, I have to say, has aroused deep passions amongst some of our church forefathers. You may know that Luther was so outraged by the book of James that he called it a book of straw. He wanted it culled from the biblical canon. That's a pretty strong view. Now, Luther, of course, put a massive focus on the grace of God in salvation. And to be fair, to put him in context, he was reacting to the direction of the church in his day and where it had been going with its practices. There was too much emphasis, for example, on giving money for the forgiveness of sins and of piling up good works as a way to heaven. And and Luther, quite rightly, re-emphasised, he he didn't discover, but he re-emphasised the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. But James, in contrast, has a strong focus on works, doing good deeds, acting justly, obeying God's commandments, practising hospitality, treating people fairly and kindly, All of these get the healthy heart tick by James. It's almost as if James has been reading Paul's letters and says, "Mm, yes, of course, uh, Brother Paul, you're perfectly right, but you do run the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater with all this talk of pure grace. So James gives the pendulum a bit of a push in the other direction, if you like. Of course, we won't think, and James doesn't think, that we can be saved by doing good works. That's just silly. Of course, it is what a lot of people out in the community think. You've heard them. I'm going to take a risk on it. I've led a pretty good life. I reckon the old man upstairs will let me in. That's a fairly common perspective. But funnily enough, there's a 21st century fashion among Christians that heads absolutely in the opposite direction. That we can actually call ourselves Christians, attend church, take communion, but dispense with the doing of right deeds. And this is why the community just doesn't get us anymore. They know you're supposed to do the right thing if you want to impress St Peter at the pearly gates. And of course, James recognises that we will occasionally fail, repent, confess our sins and get forgiven. That's not the point here. What he's focusing on is the ways in which we consistently behave. And oddly enough, Jesus himself seemed quite committed to this quaint belief that you should actually practice not so much what we preach, but what he preached. He said things like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It seems that Jesus was quite pernickety about people actually consistently trying to lead lives where they tried to do good, not merely be forgiven. Now, this is a bit challenging, but I have to say that on Father's Day, this is quite good news. Because in my experience, and I don't mean to be at all misogynistic about this, but men generally prefer action to talk. I think that's true. And in over half a century of going to church, in fact, well over half a century, 
I've heard a thousand sermons on how God loves people and accepts them just as they are. And Jesus has so often been presented as someone who plaintively knocks at your heart's door, longing for you to fall in love with him. It's rare to hear, as James might tell us, that God's tough. He's got high standards. And that anyone who seriously takes him on is likely to come off second best. And yet, the heroes in the Bible are people like Jacob, who told God to put his dukes up and he had an all-night fight with him. Or Elijah, who got stuck into some priests of another religion who were, who were trying to kill his people. Or Abraham, who argued with God, told him he was wrong. Until he finally saw the reasonableness of God's anger against Sodom. Or the lawyer Paul, who copped a darn good flogging and then went and told the magistrate quite politely that the magistrate was in the deep stuff because Paul was a, a Roman citizen and shouldn't have been flogged. And Paul toughed it out in front of him until he got a proper formal apology in court. Or Thomas, who told Jesus that he wouldn't believe in him unless Jesus stripped off and let Thomas shove his fingers in his hands and in, in the wound in his side. Thomas was the original scientist who said he wouldn't believe until he could test it with repeatable physical experiments. Thomas is actually my faith hero in the whole Bible. I love Thomas. Thomas didn't believe in God because some soppy songs in a darkened auditorium made him feel gooey. But because his God stood up to rigorous intellectual investigation like Thomas I need to see the evidence and what I like about this book of James is that it's a book of practical action he tells us how to live in practical ways and he won't put up with pretend Christians you see when Jesus said let the little children come to me he apparently didn't mean it in the way that was being practiced by some of our paid church employees and we've heard about in the Royal Commission or the story that I'm still reeling over that turned up earlier this month about the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania with more than a thousand kids molested by over 300 Catholic priests for 70 years and covered up by bishops and cardinals perhaps all the way up to the Pope himself I I get so angry about this and I struggle with it. James wouldn't be mucking around with lawyers, public relations gurus who try to spin how we should deal with these dirty priests. He'd just say, sack the lot of them. Cancel their church pensions and their titles. Kick them out, rebuild the whole system and then let's invite the victims in and have a really big sorry party and let them tell us how they felt. James concludes this chapter that we're on this morning with this elegantly simple definition of what it means to be a Christian. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after widows and orphans in their distress 
and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And I ask myself, what part of this do I not understand? What does God want me to do? For 25 years as a school principal, this was my personal motto. Everything I had to do had to pass this test. I couldn't tell you how many times I sat in a meeting and just muttered, orphans and widows. That's why places like St John's Crisis Care are so important. They deal with people who need help. They don't abuse those who come to them in pain. They don't just faff around with committees and inquiries and stuff. There's real action. And that's what James is calling us to. Before I retired, I was principal of Emmanuel College. Like most schools, we tried to stop students from dropping litter around the grounds. And after years of trying and failing, it was the hardest thing. One day I stood up in assembly and said something like this. I said, look, we won't ever fix this problem until every student here comes to see this place as their own. When we all recognise that we'll all benefit from being committed to living in a place that, that we respect and where we respect each other. Dropping litters like soiling your own bed. We all want to be in a community that values clean and honest living. That's what employers are going to want from an Emmanuel graduate. And I got myself wound up and I said, we need to be able to say as a community, I'm from Emmanuel, I don't leave a mess behind. And something about my speech that day just caught the imagination of the entire secondary school who was listening. I started hearing my little phrase back and I hadn't thought about it till the moment I said it, but I started hearing it back from students. It turned up in little videos that they'd make on assemblies and so on, and in jokes. And to my great astonishment, the school grounds stopped being messy. Litter was not being dropped or left behind on the tables. It was a genuine transformation. So I started to speak about it on assemblies a little bit more broadly and I encouraged students to see that my little throwaway line had more meaning than just litter. It applied to life generally. I'm from Emmanuel. I don't leave a mess behind in my life. I'm reliable. I'm faithful. I'm responsible. And I think James is saying something similar to us here. I'm a Christian. I don't leave a mess behind. I don't leave a mess of abuse, of dysfunctional families, of unpaid debts, of unnecessary road carnage, of drunk, of drug and alcohol abuse, of broken relationships, of wasted resources. <clears throat> when I was just 15 years old, I went to a camp, a youth camp, and the leaders taught us from the book of James for an entire week, morning and night. I have never forgotten that week. It spoke to me as a teenager and it genuinely changed my life. This is what I heard. Follow God. Do the right thing. Don't get taken in by ungodly power structures or smooth religious talkers. Stop pretending it's difficult. Keep it simple. And the one thing I want to do in this sermon this morning is, is, is not to complicate things. James is a simple book. Don't let the academics stuff it up. God's good. You say you love good, you love God, so do good. Like God says and like God does.
There you go. There's James in words all of one syllable. It's not hard. For the general public, the Christian church is so sadly on the nose because of the various messes we've left behind. I don't mean we, us in this room, but the church broadly. How did we manage to mess up dealing with our employees who are doing so badly the wrong thing? Why do all the cool people on television and in films put their hands together and love everyone and say namaste? And everybody thinks it's lovely. But Christians are, are seen as people who don't believe in science and who are known by their hatred. That's the way the world sees us. How do we let that happen? How did, how did such vast numbers of the Christian church fall for the Willow Creek redefinition of what a church service would be, only to discover years later that it was all built on shonky foundations? How did we fall for that American marketing thing called the Christian growth, church growth movement that talked about pastors as CEOs and marketed Christian leadership as though it's something you get out of the Harvard Business Review. I don't mean that Christians will always get it right or that the church will always get it right. Of course not. James understands that too. In a couple of chapters, he'll talk to us about repentance and forgiveness. Stuart's been talking to us <clears throat> about being a church that's known for our relationships. We've done a bit of word derivation this morning, this morning already. Let's do some more. Relationship comes... I didn't mean to do that. We'll go back. Relationship comes from the Latin latio, meaning to carry or to bear. To relate is to carry back. And it was used in ancient times to mean carrying or bringing back news often from a battle or another place, which is why we talk about relating a story or relating the news. When we tell a story, we relate something. We've shifted it now to mean the way that we deal with each other. But the point is this, if we want to have strong relationships, we will need to hear one another's stories. That means we will need to bear one another's burdens. Because once you hear my story then you need to deal with the problems that my story gives to you. Once I hear your story, I have to help you to somehow live in that story. We'll need to help each other to cope whatever it is that's giving us grief. Real help, not pretend help, certainly not abusive help. And it will be costly. It's helpful to meet our special friends and go over to the town centre for coffee where we can share more deeply. But we mustn't leave our visitors stand around in the foyer with their needs unaddressed. We need to guard against falling into cliques. And, and inner circles. But we need inner circles and we need cliques in a way because that's how we come more deeply with each other. We've got to walk this fine line between being open and being close enough to share. Real religion? Look after orphans and widows, says James. It's not fancy procession down church aisles. It's not being in the cathedral and putting a new extension on. 
It's not clever marketing and large numbers. I truthfully don't care how many people come to our church. Who are the orphans and widows in our world? Anyone who is without economic or social defence in a violent and cruel world. What I really care about is that we can manage to look after orphans and widows or whatever they might be in our day. And how do you keep yourself? How do I keep myself from being polluted by the world? Well, I stay close to Jesus. And I run my life and we run our church according to biblical principles and standards, not organisational rules, not marketing principles. And we focus on worshipping God and loving and serving people. Funnily enough, they're the two great commandments. We read them every week. Love God, love others. Shema, obey. James.